Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. News about global warming doesn't leave much room for optimism, but scientists are looking at multiple ways to combat climate change. Those ways involve using nature and technology. Today, where we live, we learn about strategies when coupled with efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that may help the planet avoid a warm-up above one and a half degrees Celsius. Beyond that, and scientists say planet Earth will see serious consequences, including sea level rise, severe drought and the displacement of millions. You've heard of permafrost, areas near the North and South Poles that have remained frozen for years, but as the planet warms up, these areas are thawing, which will only add to the amount of greenhouse gases that are admitted. Coming up, we'll talk about what's at stake with researcher Dr. Raj Saha from Bates College in Maine. First, before we hear about technologies that are in development to reduce carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, we wanted to learn more about forest management and how trees can be invaluable in storing carbon and reducing emissions. Uh, joining us from a studio from Vermont Public Radio is Bill Keaton. He's a professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont. Bill, welcome to our, to our show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, we've often heard uh, forests described as carbon sinks. Tell us what we mean by that when we hear that term. Well, of course, carbon takes up, uh, I'm sorry, forests take up carbon from the atmosphere through the process of photosynthesis. And then they store that carbon in vegetation and in other life forms over the long term. And if they're taking up more carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis than they're losing through respiration and decomposition, then that means that that becomes a sink. It becomes a bank, essentially, that is storing carbon. And that's really important because the more carbon that we can keep in that bank, in the forest system, the less of it will be up in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. And how is that different with how forests are storing carbon compared when we think about fossil fuels that are underground? Well, it's a little different because fossil fuels are this very stable, very long-term uh, storage reservoir, so to speak, you know, that's permanently locked in the earth. Whereas carbon that's moving in and out of forests is in constant flux. It's a, a very dynamic system. And that's tricky because if we're talking about managing forests or conserving forests as a carbon sink, Really, we're talking about playing around with these dynamics and these flux pathways, and we're, we're recognizing the carbon's constantly moving in and out of the system, but we're trying to lock up more of it in the system and in durable wood products and other sinks uh, at any one instant in time as we can so that we're tilting that balance a little bit so more of it is stored down here and less of it is up in the atmosphere. So that's why a forest management is important uh, when we think about how trees are either dying naturally or being cut down, even rotting, uh, as that carbon is then uh, re-released into the atmosphere. So uh, tell us about some of your work and how you started thinking about forest management practices to help with the carbon that's stored in our forests. Sure. Well, I've been interested for a long time in things that we could do not just to manage forests sustainably for wildlife and for water and for timber and all the 
uh, goods and services that we depend upon, but also for carbon. And, and I became interested in various different silvicultural techniques or forestry techniques that are a little bit lower impact. They're a little bit lighter on the land, and yet they help the forest to accrue or accumulate carbon over time, more so than they might under, let's say, a more conventional management approach. And we've discovered that, that we can do that, that we can manage forests sustainably for timber while also adding this margin of carbon storage uh, to the land. And then it turns out also that carbon provides a pretty good umbrella for a lot of other things that we care about. What I mean is a forest managed well for carbon is also likely to provide a lot of other services that we really depend on, like flood resilience and habitat for biodiversity and open space and a lot of other things. Before we get into uh, what you and your other colleagues have discovered through your management techniques, uh, when we think about the, our region of New England and our forests, uh, how much of it uh, remains forested? And when we think about uh, old growth trees, are those any are any of those left? Yeah, well, not as much as I would like, <laughs> but um, well, I can I can give you some numbers right off the bat for Connecticut. Uh, so Connecticut has 1.8 million acres of forests. And, you know, that's down off of its peak. Um, of course, most of Connecticut, like southern New England, was cleared for agriculture in the, seventh, in the 18th and 19th centuries and then recovered. It showed this remarkable rebound in forest area. But that peaked in Connecticut in the 70s and 80s and, and since then had been declining for quite a while and is now at about 58% forest cover. But there's some good news in Connecticut which is that the most recent U.S. Forest Service data show that the forest cover there has actually stabilized and might even be ticking up a little bit. It increased 3% since 2012. Overall, for the region as a whole, for all of New England, we're somewhere around 80% forested cover. And, you know, that varies. In southern New England, it's less. In northern New England, it's more. Up here in Vermont, we're at 78. But the, the point is that we have a heavily forested landscape, and there are a lot of things that we can do to manage that landscape as a carbon sink, both by conserving forests and by managing them sustainably. And, and I want to just really stress that idea of conserving forests because probably the best thing that we can do to fight climate change from a forestry standpoint is just to keep forests as forests. And then sort of once we acknowledge that, then there are lots of things we could talk about in terms of specific management techniques. I also want to just add one other thing, which is that there's an increasing awareness that urban forest cover and suburban forest cover, which of course is important in a heavily parcelized landscape like Connecticut with a high population density, that, that, that urban and suburban forest cover also is really important from a, a garbage, carbon storage standpoint and, and making sure that we protect that urban cover and even enhance it and expand it is also really important. Oh, when we think about uh, our, I know you're up in Vermont, when we think about uh, Connecticut and areas that have remained forested, uh, but places that have been cleared through agriculture but have now been uh, turned over for uh, economic development. So reforestation, is that not much of an option for a state like Connecticut because of all of the, um, the development that has come uh, down the line and, and people's urges to want to live further and further into uh, the country, so to speak? Reforestation is an important option. And maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to just quickly mention that there are three general approaches we could think about for using forests as a carbon sink. 
One is reforestation or maybe even afforestation, meaning planting forests where we haven't had them before. The second is something called avoided conversion. And what this basically means is protecting a forest from some kind of a, a change or a conversion to some other cover type like development or pavement or a yard or something like that. So basically keeping it as forest. And then the third option is something called improved forest management, meaning we will use these carbon forestry techniques that I was describing before. So we've got those three options. And of those three, Avoided conversion is actually probably the most important for southern New England because of the development pressure that you have there. But that said, improved forest management on the forests that you do have is going to be very important. So that's something we really need to look at. Reforestation that you asked me about is important, but there are fewer opportunities for that in New England generally because we are heavily forested and um, we don't have a lot of what we might call marginal agricultural lands or, or places we would want to take out of agricultural production and put back into forests. There might be some areas like that, like in particular up here where I live, riparian restoration or, or planting of forests along streams and rivers is really important to improve water quality uh, and to reduce nutrient runoff into lakes. Um, and, and that is a good opportunity. But compared to some other parts of the world, reforestation here is probably not going to be our, our biggest option. This is where we live. We're talking about how forest management can help address excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. My guest is uh, Dr. Bill Keaton. He's a professor of forest ecology and forestry at University of Vermont. Um, he's joining us from a studio uh, at Vermont Public Radio. So um, in your research, uh, switching from higher to lower intensity harvesting practices uh, can help uh, keep uh, more carbon in our forests. So tell us how you do that. Sure. Well, there there's some general approaches. Um, one might be to harvest the forest a little bit less frequently. Foresters call that an extended rotation, basically allowing the forest to grow for a longer period of time between harvests. And if you do that, you give the forest a chance to accumulate more carbon and, and store it. Uh, so that's the first option. The second is something that we call retention, um, meaning each time we do harvest uh, the forest for timber, we retain carbon there. We try to leave trees behind, standing and dead um, uh, on the ground as, as downed logs. So we try to retra retain structure and carbon in the forest. And once you understand that retention is an option, then you can start talking about lots of different forestry techniques that, that do that in different ways. So, you know, in very broad terms, those are the kinds of things that the forestry profession is exploring. Um, so those tend to be a little bit lighter touch. And in some cases, we can even use those approaches to restore older forest conditions, which I know is something that you mentioned earlier. And it's something I've, I'm in, interested in in particular, the idea that, that old growth forests and, and restored old forests um, can store exceptionally high quanti quantities of carbon, and that could be a really important strategy. But there's also really a, an important role for well-managed working forests 
that are producing what we call durable wood products. So timber that's going into long-term storage as opposed to some kind of product that's disposed of quickly and only has a short lifespan. There's a lot of interest these days in something called mass timber, basically large dimension timber, uh, cross-laminated beams and this kind of thing that can be used to produce large timber frame structures. There's been good work out of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies there in, in New Haven and, and elsewhere, you know, showing that that can be an important carbon sink as well. So um, for the forest sector overall, uh, U.S. Forest Service scientist uh, Chris Woodall said, we need a portfolio of carbon strategies that would include these more lightly managed forests, maybe old forest reserves, as well as really well-managed working forests that are pr- providing these durable wood products. Uh, Bill, uh, before we take a call, uh, you know, some of our listeners uh, may be hearing this conversation and uh, may think that we shouldn't be logging our forests at all here in New England. How do you respond to that? Well, um, I, I don't agree with that view. I think that there is a role, as I said, for um, lightly managed forests that, that accumulate high levels of carbon storage over time. There's also a really important role for reserves and maybe places where we allow natural processes to operate on their own. Those provide other kinds of values, particularly habitats for what we call late successional species. But I think that there's a really important role for working forests in so many ways, um, not just to support the timber industry and all the jobs that go along with that, but also in order to do really good restoration that we work, that, I'm sorry, that we need out there on the landscape. There, there are plenty of places where we have younger forests or uh, poorly formed uh, trees, uh, you know, resulting from uh, soil impoverishment in the 19th century and places where we can use really good silviculture and good forestry to improve the health and the quality of those forests. So uh, again, I'm a believer in really having a diversity of approaches, and I think there are a whole variety of options uh, that that we need to have in our tool bag. Uh, this is where we live. Again, my guest, uh, Bill Keaton, professor of forest ecology and forestry at University of Vermont. I wanted to take a call. Susan from Simsbury is on the line. Susan, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm so excited to hear Dr. Keaton on the radio. Um, I'm um, just publishing a paper right now with uh, Dr. Bill Muma and Dr. Ed Faison on a of a specific defined strategy for letting existing forests grow called pro fo- sorry proforestation. Um, so this would be a way of really just kind of explicitly saying that for carbon, um, one of the best things we can do in addition to reforestation where possible or afforestation or preventing conversion is we're finding that older forests are actually, soaking up an incredible amount of carbon and um, letting them grow, particularly in key ecoregions, um, the riparian buffers that Dr. Keaton was talking about, um, core forest, um, places where there aren't invasives and there don't seem to be you know, progressive problems would be a really important cost-effective strategy and the most immediate strategy to having the biggest benefits for climate change. And what we found is that actually there's an incredibly tiny amount of forest that is protected legally as um, an intact ecosystem that is, would be explicitly, explicitly dedicated to this pro-forestation approach. 
Well, Susan, thank and you. One other, oh, go quickly. One other thing I wanted to mention is we are having a um, film premiere of a um, old growth forest film called The Lost Forest of New England. And um, Bob Leverett, who's well known as an old growth forest um, person in the Northeast, will be there. And it's at Cine Studio at Trinity College at 7.30 on um, March 28th. And it's free. Thank you, Susan, uh, for your call. Uh, Bill, did you want to respond to Susan's uh, uh, comments on proforestation? Well, there's probably nobody who would, you know, agree more than I do that there's a really important role for old growth forests as carbon reservoirs and uh, for providing other really important values. I, I've spent much of my career studying old growth in the Adirondacks and, and in many other parts of the world. And, and I agree absolutely with the caller that um, the, the research is clear that not only do old growth forests store exceptionally high levels of carbon, but uh, the most recent data show that they actually continue to add carbon, or at least they can, for much longer periods of time than we used to believe. So I, I couldn't agree more that um, protecting the old growth forests that are left is really important and that there might also be a role for restoring more old growth or, or bringing those back on some portion of the landscape. However, I... I, I don't uh, agree with the view that all of our forests should be managed that way. I think that there are other issues when you start talking about protecting or not managing the majority of our forests. Uh, one of the most important is that the the demand for, for timber and wood products is typically met in, in that kind of scenario simply by displacing your um, your consumption of timber uh, to another source. And so the, the concern is that we would simply displace the harvesting impact somewhere else in the world and then need to Im import the timber uh, and the wood products uh, from there. And, and that kind of activity can have a higher carbon footprint associated with it than if we produce those wood products sustainably here at home. So I'm a believer and again, having a portfolio, a sort of a mix of options and strategies that we use on the landscape, reserves, uh, extended rotations, uh, lightly managed forests, but also areas that we're, we're managing really well using excellent forestry practices to provide wood products uh, sustainably right here at home. I wanted to welcome into our conversation now uh, Sabina Foos, head of the Sustainable Resource Management and Global Change Working Group at the Mercator Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change in Berlin, Germany. She was also an author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2018 Climate Report. Sabina, welcome to our show. Thank you. I wanted you to respond to what we've been hearing from Bill Keaton uh, from Vermont uh, about uh, using uh, forests and other land-based options as a way to uh, store uh, carbon, help reduce emissions. Is this a, a big tool in the toolbox, so to speak? Yes, so I agree with uh, what Dr. Keaton has been saying about um, the utmost importance of conserving our carbon sinks and forests are very important. Um, each year, um, the conversion of forests to other land uses releases a lot of emissions. And as you've been talking about the IPCC special report on 1.5 degree that was um, invited for by the UNFCCC after um, the Paris Agreement when that 1.5 degree target really got into focus, 
um, the, the carbon budget, so the amount of CO2 that we're still allowed to deposit in the atmosphere before we actually um, significantly raise the risk of um, having higher warming than 1.5 degrees at the end of the century. So that budget um, was about 420 billion tons of CO2. Now, to put that into perspective, only last year we were emitting 42 billion tons uh, CO2 worldwide. So it's not rocket science to see that if we continue at this pace, uh, we cannot continue to, to emit. And that also includes uh, emissions from conversion of forest. But Dr. Keaton has also been um, laying his finger on some something else that is very important, and that is that you could actually lock up more CO2. So in the face of this big challenge to reduce emissions so rapidly down to zero, there is more and more talk now um, of the necessity of actually having to clean up some of the CO2 that we have already deposited into the atmosphere and expanding our carbon sinks by improving forest management, by reforestation and so on, is of course one straightforward way to do that, to actually take some of the CO2 that we put out there back and lock them up in our forests. Uh, we know that deforestation is a big problem in places like the Amazon and Indonesia, uh, but as you mentioned, a big contributor to climate change as well. Exactly. So um, tropical deforestation has, of course, been one of the, the biggest drivers, but also um, Dr. Keaton was mentioning um, other, uh, conversions to, to other than agricultural activities um, that uh, costs us um, the carbon that is locked up in the forests. And as I said, it's also important to think about how we can um, expand our sinks um, in order to lock up even more CO2. And as Dr. Keaton was also saying, um, in a lot of places that might not be so easy because you have competing land uses. Um, in, in his case, there, there is already a lot of forested area, but in other places you were mentioning the tropics, mm. um, it might actually be needed for further economic development. I wanted to go back to Bill Keaton before we had to break. Uh, from your research and what you've been doing in Vermont, uh, what is your advice for landowners in Connecticut to participate in uh, so-called carbon markets uh, to help uh, store more carbon in our forests? Sure. Well, that that's a big question and a really important one. Uh, I probably won't be able to address it fully uh, this morning on the radio, so I'll just say really quickly that if you Google Vermont Forest ca Carbon, you'll find a really good report that kind of lays out all the options for landowners, not just in Vermont, but throughout New England. So that would be a really good source. Um, but really quickly, for, for a state like Connecticut, it'll be a little bit challenging to participate in carbon markets because your parcel sizes there tend to be quite low. I, I looked up the statistics before the show, and about 71% of Connecticut's forests are privately owned. And then of that, uh, only 30% is in parcel sizes that is 100 ac that are 100 acres or larger in size, and only 2% in parcels that are 500 acres or more in size. And that's tricky then from a carbon market standpoint, because to make carbon projects work well, you, you need larger parcels, either single large uh, 
parcels on the order of 1,000 acres or more in size for a standalone project, or properties that are about 200 acres or more in size that you might aggregate together into a, a more cooperative carbon project that would be eligible for the international voluntary carbon markets. So it's going to be tricky to make that work in Connecticut, and yet there are opportunities. You do have some some parcels and some properties that are in the 200-acre and larger size categories where you could think about doing aggregated projects like we're beginning to pioneer up here in Vermont. Um, and there also might be a role for something really unconventional, and, and, and I'm going to be bold and propose it right here on the air so you heard it here first, but the idea of actually reestablishing larger parcels, basically de-subdividing um, some areas where you can form up larger areas that, that then might be eligible for, uh, for carbon projects. The, the fundamental issue there is just the economy of scale that you need to make a carbon project work. The, the costs of, of developing those projects tend to be quite high, so you need a larger area on the order of several thousand acres to generate enough revenue through the sale of emissions offsets to outweigh those, those upfront costs. Well, thank you uh, for bringing up that idea here on the show. Uh, Dr. Bill Keaton, again, professor of forest ecology and forestry at University of Vermont. Uh, very interesting to talk with you to learn about your research, and thank you for that uh, heads up on that report. We'll make sure we link it on our website uh, at wmpr.org slash where we live. Bill, thanks for joining us from Vermont Public Radio. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Sabina Foos will stay with us as we learn more about negative emissions strategies that can complement efforts to reduce emissions around the globe. You can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Scientists are clear we must change our habits like driving everywhere or our reliance on fossil fuels if we want to get serious about combating climate change. Researchers are also exploring technologies. According to a story in National Geographic, quote, from planting more trees and restoring grasslands to using sophisticated machines with fans and filters to capture CO2 from ambient air, these far-ranging steps are all aimed at one thing, sucking greenhouse gases from the sky. We're going to talk about some of these ideas with my guest, Sabina Foos, head of the Sustainable Resource Management and Global Change Working Group at the Mercator Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change in Berlin. She's joining us from a studio uh, in Germany. She was also an author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2018 Climate Report. Uh, So, uh, Sabina, tell us a little bit more when we say negative emissions strategies. What are we talking about exactly? Exactly. So the term negative emission strategies came out of um, the idea that you would actually be taking up um, CO2 from the atmosphere. So the positive emissions would be those that you deposit in the atmosphere. And then if you subtract them, that's where the term negative came from. Now, um, the term negative emissions has also been uh, a little bit disputed as maybe having negative connotations. So a lot of the scientists these days are talking about carbon dioxide removal, but really it is the same thing and the same type of practices and technologies that we're talking about. So I just wanted to clarify that. 
So by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, that can slow warming. Uh, my understanding, Sabina, is scientists weren't always warm to this idea. What made them change and, and thinking about how these technologies are being developed? Well, there are very different aspects to this. So first of all, I think we should make a distinction between the different ways how you can actually uh, withdraw CO2 from the atmosphere. And in the first portion of the show, we've already heard about reforestation, restoration of ecosystems, improving forest management, and these kind of things, which I think are a lot less controversial than some of the things that probably you're alluding to. Um, and that have been uh, have been the cause of of um, discussions uh, in the past. Well, um, one of the um, criticisms that has come um, about is um, the scale that we actually see um, in the scenarios that lead us to ambitious um, temperature targets. So um, the worry is that. Uh, if you, for instance, um, have to um, do this all with afforestation, then you actually are occupying a whole amount of land that in the face of a growing population and goals to preserve biodiversity and so on and so on, you might actually want to use for something else. Also, another um, practice or technology that has been uh, suggested um, to uh, remove CO2 from the atmosphere goes a little bit further. It's also about planting additional biomass that will be sequestering CO2 during that growth phase. But then if you use that biomass and turn it into bioenergy, you wouldn't release the CO2 during the conversion process, but it would actually capture it and store it underground. So in that sense, you would also remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. But again, you would be using um, large amounts of land to grow that additional biomass. So that was one a line of criticism. The other line of criticism comes with the with the storage of the CO2, which in many countries has not been um, very popular because it was previously associated uh, with, um, fossil, uh, with the fossil fuel industry and combining this carbon capture with, for instance, coal-fired power plants, and so thereby enabling an extension of the lifetime of coal-fired power plants because you actually um, capture the CO2 and store it. But for negative emissions, the idea is really to combine it with bioenergy. Uh, Sabina, so one of the uh, technologies you were talking about, direct air capture, taking the carbon and then uh, putting it in underground. And, and there are concerns about this. Are there any, is it dangerous at all? Or what do scientists know? <laughs> well, there are two uh, parts to that story. So first of all, direct air capture goes beyond uh, the pure carbon capture that I was just describing before, because it uses a, chem a chemical reaction to directly um, suck up CO2 from the ambient air and then um, store it um, underground. So for one thing, this chemical reaction needs quite a bit of energy. So it's also a very costly process still at the at the moment, even though there is actually also some U.S. research that has uh, pointed towards um, costs coming down for this technology. And there's also practical experiences now by a company in Switzerland with this um, technology. So um, the cost component has been one big point. Um, speaking against this technology, the other um, risks that you're probably alluding to um, 
are connected with um, storing the CO2. So there's been quite a bit of debate of whether there is safe storage, whether the CO2 stays where we actually put it. And um, I am not a geologist, but what we learn from geologists um, is that there is actually quite a bit of um, geological storage that would allow us to um, store CO2 there. And if you look around the world, uh, for instance, Norway at Sleipner, they have been storing CO2 there for 20 years. So um, this definitely um, looks like a possibility. Then again, of course, we are nowhere um, near having the infrastructure yet to do this at large scale. So this is also something that would have to start relatively soon if we wanted to rely on this. Uh, Sabina, there's also something else that has been discussed uh, on geoengineering or solar radiation management. Can you talk about this and how this would be different from negative emissions technology that we were just learning about? Absolutely. So it's actually quite important to me to make um, a distinction between carbon dioxide removal or negative emissions on the one hand and solar radiation management on the other hand. I know it's previously all gone under the label of geoengineering and that has not always been very helpful in the discussion um, is also what scientists perceive because these two are actually um, fundamentally different. So while actually cleaning up some of the CO2 that we have already deposited in the atmosphere, so removing CO2 addresses the root cause of climate change by reducing the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. What solar radiation management does is that it um, addresses uh, directly the symptoms. So you try to directly um, influence the temperature and thereby um, reducing some of the worst impacts of climate change temporarily by reflecting incoming solar radiation back into space. So um, this is one important difference. One addresses the root causes, the other one addresses the symptoms. Um, other important differences include um, the, the global risks that are associated with the two different approaches. Um, you're having very different timescales and you also have very distinct um, governance challenges. If you, for instance, compare afforestation in, in one place um, with an activity of um, placing um, a large amount of particles into the stratosphere to reflect sunlight back, um, these are, of course, very different uh, pairs of shoes and um, also have to be governed in such a way. Um, and another important thing is that if you um, just address um, the symptoms, so you would um, try to directly regulate the temperature by reflecting back um, solar radiation, you're, of course, also not doing anything against um, the other impacts that um increasing CO2 emissions have. And these are, for example, ocean acidification that would still be ongoing. And then the final point is that, of course, you would also need uh, to keep doing it. So um, with solar radiation management, you would need to um, renew, for instance, if, if you do it through shooting up um, particles into the, the stratosphere, you would need to keep doing that in order to keep the temperature stable. If you would stop doing it, it would eventually dissolve, then um, the temperature would quickly get up again.
This is where we live. Uh, joining us from a studio in Berlin, Germany, is Sabina Fuss, head of the Sustainable Resource Management and Global Change Working Group at the Mercator Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change there. Uh, we're learning about uh, different technologies uh, to help deal with uh, the emissions uh, in our atmosphere. Uh, ben is calling from Wallingford. Ben, we have a short amount of time. Uh, quickly, what's your question? So uh, I have uh, two quick questions. One is, is there any... Is there any effort similar to carbon to deal with methane, which is all, uh, also a climate change problem? And secondly, uh, what the guest has to say about carbon capture in the creation of concrete um, that uh, some companies are proposing to use the carbon from power plants to create concrete and reduce the uh, <clears throat> climate change effects of concrete. Well, that's a good question. Uh, let's stick with the second one because of time. Uh, Sabina, again, he was asking about carbon capture and the manufacturing of concrete. What do you know about that? Exactly. So this is a, a very lively discussion at the moment uh, because uh, since we, we don't really have those incentives yet to at large scale store the CO2 underground that um, I was describing before, um, there is actually a lot of discussion around um, regarding the CO2 instead as a resource and locking it up in products. And so construction materials have been uh, one um, proposition to do so. I think we're still lacking the evidence in how far and how quickly we could scale this, but it's definitely something that is now very hot on the um, science agenda. And um, looking back to the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees that you were mentioning before, it's also now in the new definition of carbon dioxide removal recognized as an option. So it's... Um, Products are also mentioned as a as a possible repository for CO2. However, this of course depends also on how permanent it would be in there. Building materials are on a different um, timeline there than than other propositions that have been made, like synthetic fuels and so on, where the CO2 would be quickly released back into the atmosphere. Uh, Sabina, it's been interesting to learn about some of these technologies, but when we talk about um, not allowing uh, the planet to uh, go beyond that one and a half uh, degrees Celsius uh, to warm up in the next uh, 20 years or so, when we hear about these different technologies, they're not a, a silver bullet per se, but they have to be used in combination with just overall um, how we change our behaviors to try to reduce emissions to begin with? Yes, absolutely. So, um this is a very important message that's also coming forth from the last IPCC report and um, from the research that I have been conducting with um, colleagues um, that negative emissions technologies, carbon dioxide removal, are absolutely not to be considered a substitute for rapid um, short-term reductions in emissions. So um, we basically have to drive down emissions and the fact that now in the 1.5 degree pathways that we assessed in the special report, we see such an important role for, for carbon removal for negative emissions um, is basically due to the fact that, okay, for one, we have a more ambitious temperature target, but also we are actually quite late with mitigation. So we first have to reduce our emissions in the short term rapidly and, and, and comprehensively, and then if we if we don't manage to um, if that is not enough, then uh, negative emissions can complement this. 
Sabina Fuse again is head of the Sustainable Resource Management and Global Change Working Group at the Mercator Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change in Berlin, Germany, uh, joining us from a studio there. Uh, Sabina, it's been very interesting to learn about these different technologies. Uh, obviously, we'll have to circle back uh, to this conversation in the future. We do appreciate your expertise. You're welcome. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, since Al Gore's climate change documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, Americans have thought about places like the Arctic and how melting ice impacts habitats for animals like the polar bear. But there are also concerns with the thawing of frozen land known as permafrost and how this will contribute to the growing problem of climate change. We're going to talk about methane also uh, coming up, and we'll learn more about permafrost right after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere, but there is another major issue that's being caused by global warming, and that's the thawing of permafrost. To tell us more, joining us via Zoom is Dr. Raj Saha, a lecturer at Bates College in Maine. He teaches climate modeling and the mathematics of climate change. Uh, Raj, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. So I mentioned permafrost. Uh, tell us uh, where this is located. How much land, frozen land, are we talking about? Uh, so permafrost uh, constitutes about a quarter of the northern hemisphere landmass, uh, mostly located in the in the northern part of the northern hemisphere um, around the Arctic, going around the world. Uh, even when we think about uh, Alaska, a lot of that is, is permafrost. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Alaska going into uh, uh, northern Canada and a big stretch of Siberia. Uh, when we th- think about permafrost, can you talk about what it's made of, what it looks like? Yeah, so um, permafrost uh, is frozen soil, and uh, this soil has been frozen uh, in some places for tens of thousands of years, and uh, in some places for uh, hundreds of thousands of years, um, close to a half a million years in some places. And um, uh, so this is a vast amount of, of frozen soil, if you will, and this soil has embedded within it uh, a pretty significant amount of uh, organic carbon. And um, so what it looks like is, um, um, well, lately there have been, uh, there's, uh, there've been lots of places where the permafrost um, land has collapsed due to abrupt thawing and we can see the cross section. It kind of looks like visually um, um, like mud, frozen mud. and when when it starts to thaw, it just takes on this sort of a, a slurry ice cream like texture. Uh, but again, there's a lot of variations uh, from place to place. In some places, uh, the permafrost is uh, pretty continuous throughout the land, and in some places, it's in isolated pockets. So lots of variations. So you mentioned it holds a lot of carbon, so there's a lot of dead plant matter uh, in this permafrost. As it's thawing, why is this dangerous in terms of our problem of climate change? Right. So uh, to put this in context, your uh, two previous guests, uh, Dr. Keaton and Dr. Foose, they talked about uh, uh, carbon sinks, uh, natural and uh, artificial. Uh, The permafrost uh, could become a natural carbon source. Uh, And that's because all this carbon that's uh, locked inside the ice uh, that's frozen, 
um, uh, stays inert um, for the most part if it's if it's uh, frozen. But once it starts thawing, uh, bacterial decomposition takes over, and bacteria starts eating up this uh, organic matter that's in the soil, and the byproduct of of that process produces um, uh, carbon dioxide or methane, um, depending on what kind of uh, um, what kind of uh, setting that is, if it's waterlogged or or not. And uh, but in either case. Uh, Carbon dioxide is um, uh, carbon dioxide and methane is, is a byproduct. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, different models. You're, you do mathematics of climate change. So um, when we think about uh, you know not wanting to see the planet uh, rise above one and a half degrees Celsius, uh, how does this issue of thawing permafrost complicate the modeling? So this uh, the permafrost, uh, from what we understand, would would be a positive feedback. And um, I've been interested from the, from the mathematical side of uh, uh, climate modeling to look at how uh, uh, parts of the climate system might operate. Um, and the kinds of models I use are, are diagnostic uh, in the sense that uh, they're not very useful at making predictions, but uh, they are uh, useful in sort of telling us how a system such as the permafrost might behave if you were to change uh, surface warming at a certain rate. And uh, what we find is that um, uh, systems like the permafrost can have tipping points, uh, meaning uh, points of no return. And uh, uh, these tipping points, uh, again, to complicate matters, uh, are uh, not necessarily uh, fixed tipping points. For example, the, the Paris Agreement um, uh, tries to, uh, the goal of the Paris agreement is to limit global warming to um, 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial mean, right? But um, what uh, uh, may be possible, and that's uh, what, what some of the mathematical models suggest, is that this uh, figure, 1.5 Celsius, uh, uh, may not apply equally to uh, across all uh, the different components in your climate system. And, uh, uh, and particularly, uh, this number might itself be a sliding number. And that uh, the the tipping point, so to speak, can be itself rate dependent. It could depend on how quickly uh, the surface is warming. That's one of the things I'm trying to study. Uh, you met earlier. You mentioned methane. Um, methane. Uh, when we think about uh, the carbon emissions and what it's doing to uh, the planet warming up, methane uh, is it? Uh, how many more times worse is that gas uh, when we think about the planet warming? So methane is uh, approximately 30 times more effective than carbon dioxide in its uh, uh, in his uh, ability to uh, to capture heat, but at the same time, methane's uh, lifetime in the atmosphere is quite short. It's about it's about eight years, um, half life of about eight years. So um, it stays for a short time in the atmosphere before uh, sort of uh, breaking up and and forming CO2 as a, as 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 the end product, but it has a very um, uh, high impact during that short period of time. Uh, uh, Raj, uh, as we talk about, again, uh, climate change and habitat loss, there's also a lot of people living uh, in these areas where there's uh, permafrost. How are they being impacted? Well, for one, um, uh, the thawing permafrost is going to affect the infrastructure of how um, the northern cities in the Arctic, uh, uh, how they're connected by roads. Uh, um, the, uh, and the, the 
plowing will also impact uh, a great deal uh, the ecosystems and shifts in the ecosystems. So we're going to go from a land that's um, mostly dry on the surface to um, uh, being waterlogged in many places. So how these ecosystems are going to undergo shifts uh, is a, it's, it's a complicated question. And uh, I'm not, um, I'm, we're, we're, we're really beginning to understand uh, how these shifts might occur in the, in the near future. Um, I mean, needless to say, it's, it, it's, it's going to be complicated. Um, if you look at some uh, communities, uh, particularly uh, uh, Native, uh, Native American communities that have lived on um, uh, islands uh, in, uh, in, around Alaska, uh, some of them are, are currently being uh, relocated because uh, the, the, those islands are sort of falling apart into the ocean because the permafrost um, is, is, is uh, sort of disintegrating. By uh, the end of the century, uh, some of the uh, some of the modeling studies indicate that about a quarter of the Alaskan permafrost will have been degraded. We're not ending the show on a on a positive note, Raj. Uh, for our listeners who are learning about permafrost, hearing about these technologies earlier in the in the hour, I mean, what are some I guess some messages that you have for them, or even some of the research that you'll be uh, continuing on uh, in the future? Yeah. Um, so uh, when it comes to the permafrost, uh, if you do just some basic Google searches, you might um, uh, end up seeing a lot of catastrophic scenarios. Um, and uh, this is kind of unfortunate. Um, partly has to do with how uh, some of the original papers named their studies. They often use uh, the word bomb a lot of times. It's a methane bomb, a compost bomb. And, and, uh, and so on. So, so there's uh, this perception that the, the permafrost uh, thaw might end up being catastrophic. Now, I don't know. Um, uh, I think uh, part of, uh, or the big goal of climate science is, is really to uh, understand, and, uh, is, to, is to quantify the risks and, and look at all the various outcomes. And on the spectrum of from mild to catastrophic, what, what's the probability of, uh, of, of the system? And uh, from what I can say, is um, mild is probably not going to happen, but uh, 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 I can't say for sure if, uh, if uh, the outcome will be catastrophic. But regardless, we should try to understand the, our climate system to um, as much of a scope as we can so we can make better and more informed policy decisions. We have to understand the risks uh, involved. Well, we thank you, uh, Dr. Raj Saha, again, lecturer at Bates College in Maine, who teaches climate modeling and the mathematics of climate change. Raj, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to Lydia Brown. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. As always, you can go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live to learn more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.